First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that men everywhere, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and doubting. We have to pause in the text right there. Paul has a tendency to write very long sentences that are full of so much information that it becomes almost impossible to look at them neatly or clearly. But you'll remember this letter began with Paul's exhortation to Timothy to preach sound doctrine in the opening chapter in verses 3 through 10. Paul has warned Timothy about false teachers. He's directed Timothy to fight the good fight of faith in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, to maintain a clear conscience at the end of verse 19. And so now Paul directs Timothy to consider this subject of corporate and public worship. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, he's going to later talk about the role of women in the church in verses 9 through 15. In this brief but powerful portion, Paul reminds Timothy of the priority of prayer in verse 1. Uh, For whom we pray in verses 1 and 2. Why we pray in verse 2. How we pray in verse 8. We pray in fact for all men. That includes women and children. It's a generic term which means humanity in verse 1. We pray for all human beings. We pray for those in authority in verse 2. We pray so that we can live lives of quietness and peace. That is Lives that reflect godliness and reverence in verse 2. This is the will of God in verses 3 through 7. With holy hands lifted up to God. Free from anger and controversy in verse 8. We do all of this looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel in verses 3 through 6. So in this chapter, Paul reminds Timothy of several things. 
the importance of prayer, the nature of prayer, the aims and outcomes of prayer, and the optimal conditions for prayer. So in chapter 1, Paul has dealt with the ministry of God's word. Now in chapter 2, the emphasis is on worship of God and prayer to God. In the book of Acts, the focus or attention of the leaders in the church was to give themselves, in Acts 6, 4, continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. The pastor's job wasn't necessarily to please the people or to practice politics, but engage in the spiritual ministries of worship and discipleship and evangelism. The word of God instructs the people and prayer to God is in part supposed to inspire the people, but the purpose of prayer goes well beyond the inspiration of the people who participate. Prayer becomes an invitation to God, an invitation to do everything that he says he will do and that he can do. Remember, the moment we bow our heads and our heart, the moment that we admit that we can't, we offer the hope, the belief, the profound commitment that God can. In the world in which we live, the broken world in which we live, let me be very careful what I say right now, but I really mean it. But I do want to be careful with my words. We live in a culture and a society that believes that there is going to be a political solution to the problem of brokenness. And I want to go on record and tell you that it is hopeless. There will never be a political solution to the problem of sin, to the problem of brokenness, and to the empty and the broken heart. The only solution to the problem of sin and brokenness will forever remain the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. And so Paul talks about the importance of prayer. Prayer is the admission that we can't. God can. Paul says, I therefore, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. It would appear that Paul's instructions are directed not at individual prayer, but corporate prayer. These aren't simply instructions For Timothy, it isn't just simply for the leaders or the pastors. This is instruction for the entire congregation. And the importance of prayer is indicated by Paul's language of priority. Therefore, I exhort first of all. Let's put it this way. Paul is in effect saying, I want to push prayer to the top of the list of things that we must do. 
Remember, Paul has already charged Timothy to confront the false teacher and to wage war in verse 18. Now Timothy's charged to pray. He's charged to pray because he must pray. We must pray. Supplications are fervent requests, petitions, prayers, what we wish or earnestly desire, intercessions. That means prayer as a meeting, a rendezvous with God. Prayer is vital to the saint, but it's also vital to the corporate health, well-being, and effectiveness of the church. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, The Holy Spirit works in the church through prayer and the word of God. He cites 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Wiersbe goes on and says that the church that prays will possess power for lasting impact, and the saints in the book of Acts would turn to prayer in crisis. They would turn to prayer in the midst of persecution. They would turn to prayer in crisis and in persecution in the hopes and belief that it was the Lord God of heaven who would be the very instrument in overcoming our enemies. No wonder Paul exhorts us to pray. The church's prayers included supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks. Look what it says, for all men. This is going to be important in our study in just a moment. Supplications <clears throat> are fervent requests to God for needs. That's what that word supplication means. Fervent request to God for needs. We live in a culture and a society where we need very little until we admit that we need so much. We need the Lord. We need his power. We need his presence. We need each other. For the next few days and weeks, you're going to hear a constant cry in the popular media. We need change. But the change that they'll offer is never a change that concerns repentance and turning to God. And Jesus is our Savior. Prayers are petitions that include worship and adoration. Intercessions involve requests that are usually made on the behalf of others. For those of you who are a part of the prayer chain, and by the way, there's no reason why every single one of you shouldn't be a part of the prayer chain. You should say, how do I get on the prayer chain? How do I get on the email so that I understand what's going on concerning the requests that are made on behalf of everyone in our church? He talks about 
thanksgivings are expressions of appreciation or, or joy over what God has done in our life and the lives of the saints and the lives of the church as a whole. So Paul's instructions concerning the giving of thanks, I want to draw that to your attention because most of you are somewhat familiar with those other things. But that giving of thanks is most interesting. It translates a Greek word, eucharistias. Some of you might be familiar with that word. Those of you who grew up in a liturgical tradition or a high church tradition like myself, you know that word Eucharist. In the early church, Thanksgiving was this outburst of joy over the elements of the Lord's Supper, which we had last week. Remember when Jonathan was here and we talked about the bread and we talked about the cup, which speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, which results in this outburst of thanksgiving as you begin to consider, you mean God's willing to save me, forgive me, reconcile me? That's what that means. It is an outburst burst of thanksgiving. Some people have no problem whatsoever coming up with a list of people to pray for and things to pray for. But we often find ourselves negligent in offering expressions of thanksgiving. Thank you mothers. Thank you grandmothers. Thank you men and women who make life so much easier for us. Thank you for first responders and firemen. Thank you for police officers who are committed to safety. Thank you. Thank you for the people in our lives who are literally trying to make our lives not more difficult but easier. All men need our prayers. And now all of a sudden we reach back into the text of how Paul began the letter. And it would seem this would also include the false teachers. And this would also include those who are separated from our fellowship for any number of reasons. And so the need for all people, those who are with us and those who are outside of us, and so he's going to talk a little bit about the nature of prayer. In, in chapter, in verse 2, it says, For kings and all who are in authority, what happens, what happens when we pray for our leaders in government? What is Paul saying and why does he put this on the list? I'm going to suggest to you that when he talks about kings and those are, who are in authority, Paul understands that with God's grace and God's mercy and God's providence, we are provided a measure of protection for the church from wicked men. And some of you might be thinking, well, isn't that a bit of a selfish prayer? You're praying for kings and those who are in authority so that we could live in peace? Well, maybe there's an element of selfishness. When Paul wrote these words... Do you know who was the emperor of Rome? It was Nero. He was the emperor of Rome from 54 to 68 AD. You have to understand that Nero is going to grow up and become a monster. 
He is going to be the source of unyielding persecution. And he's also going to be the very individual who is going to order Paul not only to prison, but that his head is going to be removed from his body. Paul no doubt prays for the man who is one day going to take his life. In Corinth, when Paul wrote his masterpiece of theology, the letter to the Romans, he reminds the Christians in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, quote, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, Paul writes. But yet we pray. We pray for our president. We pray for this Supreme Court. We pray for our Congress. We pray for this governor. We pray for the judicial branch. We pray whether we embrace their political leanings or ideology or whether we don't. For Paul, when he's writing these words, persecution has already begun cruel persecution that's going to erupt with ever-increasing ferocity. Christians have always, I repeat, always faced challenges from cultures and governments. We've been received with varying degrees of tolerance and hostility. We're to pray for our leaders in crisis, or in calm, whether things are going really good or whether they're going really bad. Paul doesn't give us an exhaustive list of what we pray, but rather that we pray. And clearly the Bible teaches that God allows some to rule and others not to rule, according to Psalm chapter 2. There seems to be an ever-increasing witness in the scripture that the people get the leaders that they deserve. And that a people in rebellion will get leaders in rebellion. That a people who are disobedient to God will get leaders who are disobedient to God. And so we pray. We pray even for ourselves. We say, Lord, I don't want to be in rebellion or disobedience anymore. And I want to live in a culture and a society that invites leaders to ask the question, what is righteousness and what is wickedness? Prayer is a spiritual weapon. Paul's exhortation is broad enough to allow for prayer in every situation. And because prayer is a spiritual weapon, it has both offensive and defensive capabilities. Even in nations where there is great tolerance and great freedom, there's still this great need for prayer. Decisions by leaders right now are strengthening freedom or weakening freedom. Decisions that are being made right at this very moment. 
is going to increase our opportunity to preach the gospel or decrease our opportunity to preach the gospel. Remember, government exists, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, to promote righteousness and impede wickedness. And it's okay for each and every one of you to say to your elected officials, will you please promote righteousness? I'm hoping that each and every one of them will say, it all depends on what you think righteousness is. Well, I'm so glad you asked. But before we talk about righteousness, let's talk about wickedness. Government official, do you think it's ever a good idea, ever, to murder innocent human beings? If their answer is yes, don't vote for them. No, you laugh, but you get where I'm going with this. And I would go on record. I will never, ever, ever vote for a person who's publicly gone on record and said, I'm for killing innocent human beings. So we see the aim of prayer. Because constant prayer allows us to continue our work for Jesus. At the end of verse 2, the aims of prayer says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul, Paul's list of unexpected outcomes include peace for the saint, peace for the church, but also peace in society. Paul's outcome was never meant to mean quiet isolation from the cares or the concerns of the world. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, isn't saying, let's do this so that we can mind our own business and they can mind their own business. The Bible never ever gives us permission to retreat into isolation. Paul's outcome isn't for us to give up or not be concerned for or care about what happens in our world. Just the opposite of, of, is true. The church is never, ever called to assimilate this world's values or to isolate from this world's tragedies, but to offer God-honoring, Christ-loving engagement we continue the work of spreading the gospel in all godliness and reverence. Godliness here is not reverence and religious devotion simply in our home. It isn't godliness that is reverence and religious devotion simply in our church. But service in this world. And this is where it begins, ladies and gentlemen. This is where it begins. It says, guess what? You're free to be a Christian in your heart and in your conscience. And you can go to church and you can talk about the Bible and you can talk about God and you can talk about all of that other stuff. But just don't take the message outside the doors of the church. And I'm here to tell you that the moment that that happens, you cease to be the church in the most meaningful way. 
Church isn't just simply something inside of your heart. And it isn't something that's simply something that happens when we get together. It's something that happens when we get together and then we literally engage the world with what Jesus has done in our heart. Reverence here in that passage, reverence carries the idea of dignity. But this is dignity with a purpose, an earnestness. I would even go so far as to say this is dignity with a purpose and an earnestness and an enthusiasm. Godliness and reverence are descriptor words. They're not restricted to private piety or personal unseen devotion. Paul's exhortation to prayer leads to, quote, a public faith consistent with God's purpose to achieve the salvation of persons and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. That's what the Bible writer said in the Life Application Bible Commentary. A public faith consistent with God's purpose. But this public faith that's consistent with God's purposes is going to be highly unlikely if you never pray privately or you rarely pray corporately. Will prayer quench the fires of persecution or soothe the sting of a hostile culture? Not always. But sometimes there's going to be moments of respite and relief. Prayer is our weapon. Not against each other. But against Satan. With prayer, we can continue the work of preaching the gospel. Discipling the saints. Offering compassion and mercy. In a suffering world with all godliness and reverence. When I use that term reverence, think Dignity. And so again, the word godliness means those things that reflect the character and the will of God. And so this should be a clue to you that if it says godliness and it doesn't reflect the character or the will of God, then it's not godly. And so now we have a way of talking about righteousness to our leaders. We want leaders who reflect godliness. What does that mean? Who reflect the character and the will of God. What does that mean? I'm so glad you asked. And that's when you open up your Bible and you tell them. And they go, oh, I can't talk about the Bible. Well, what can you talk about? Well, you know, I can talk about right and wrong in general terms. Okay. I'm your huckleberry. Tell me what you think is right. Tell me what you think is wrong. Here the context, like I said, isn't private individual believers, but the overall character of the church. Think about what Paul proposes to Timothy. The dangers aren't simply outside the church. They're also inside the church. The church should be a place of peace 
And by that, I don't mean simply the absence of conflict, and I don't mean simply the absence of drama. There may be an opioid crisis even in the church, but there's also a drama crisis in the church. The church should be a place of peace. We don't simply preach or teach the Bible. We do that. But in doing that, we also confront error and we promote prayer, both public and private, prayers that are consistent with God's goals, prayers that are consistent with the mission of the church, prayers that are consistent with the reality that according to the Bible includes the salvation of people so that they will come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's words in verse 4. So Paul is going to preach a mini sermon even within the sermon. Preachers are fond of three P's and a promise. But here I find four M's and a reminder about some of the conditions necessary for effective prayer in verse 8. In just a few sentences, Paul will talk about the mission. God wants everyone saved in verses 3 and 4. He talks about a mediator. Jesus stands between God and his people in verse 5. He talks about a method. Salvation comes from God through the sacrifice of Jesus in verse 6. He talks about a messenger. Paul has been chosen by God to serve as a messenger, as a missionary, if you will, to the world in which he lives. And so here's the mission in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pause for a moment and think about that mission. Who desires all men to be saved. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. What's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior? That we pray. What do we pray? For their salvation, because he's the God who is the Savior. Savior has very many different meanings in the Bible. It can mean rescue from trial. It can mean protection from persecution. Its biggest, the largest meaning that it has is rescue from sin and brokenness. From the tragic consequences of living in a broken world. Where things haven't gone right, they've gone terribly wrong. God is our Savior. And I don't mean to belabor this, but I want you to think about this for just a moment. If God is our Savior, does that mean politics are our Savior? That can't be the meaning. Politics have never, ever been able to give sight to the blind. Or healing to the captive. It's never ever provided forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Father. God is our Savior. Not the Republican Party. Not the Democratic Party. Not even the independents. Not the government. Not the economy. Not our jobs. Not our children. And I know it's Mother's Day but not our mothers, although they come close. Especially when you think of all the times they got your 
not-so-kosher bacon out of the frying pan. Remember the immediate context. Paul has been warning about false teaching and false teachers. So what do we do? We pray for their salvation. What do we do? We pray for opportunities to bring the truth and restore people to fellowship. What do we do? Some of the false teachers have been turned over to Satan to learn the much-needed lesson of how not to blaspheme in chapter 1, verse 20. So how do we keep the door open to repentance for those who have lost their way? How do we keep the door open to repentance for our children who have lost their way? How do we keep the door open for the people that we love and care about who have lost their way? We pray. What do we do with those who question the faith or abandon the faith? We pray. What do we do with those who ignore the faith or live outside the faith? We pray. And in verse 4 it says, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is precisely where some well-meaning people, their thoughts go astray. In what sense? They have a false view of God. They have a false view of Jesus. They have a false view of salvation. In what sense? Look what it says, who desires all men to be saved. God loves people. He loves them. Every single person that you meet today, and as crazy as this is going to sound, every person that you're sitting next to, in front of, and behind, every single person that you're going to meet when you go to the restaurant, when you take your mother out for Mother's Day, and you should take her out. The waiter and the waitress is waiting on you. The people who are talking are refusing to talk to you. The people who have done great things and the people who have done horrible things. God loves them. He loves them. And that's why our prayers include salvation for the lost. Paul's instructions to pray for everyone is based on his conviction that salvation is available to everyone. Paul reminds Timothy that prayer is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Prayer pleases God, glorifies the Lord Jesus. What else? God's mission, purpose, becomes our mission and purpose as we cooperate with God through the power of the Holy Spirit to present Jesus and the gospel to people. Preacher, are you trying to save me? I can't save anybody. But Jesus can save everybody. Are you trying to talk me into heaven? Well, then somebody a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. No one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. I can pray, and I can cry, and I can plead, but that isn't what's going to affect salvation. 
does God really desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? I think that the answer is an emphatic yes. Jesus died for all human beings. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Both Peter and Paul are using the language of inclusion. Christians are being met with the challenge that you are not inclusive, that you are exclusive, and you need to be able to say, the God that I love and the God that I serve believes that all broken people can be made whole. Well, who's broken? Everyone. I'm not broken. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Remember what Jesus said? Hey, it's only the sick who need a physician. If you will never ever admit that there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something empty, there's something that has gone horribly and terribly wrong, then the chances are you'll never come to the solution. Does God really desire that all people be saved? Well, according to Peter and Paul, God is patient. The Holy Spirit directs us to pray for the unbeliever, to intercede for the lost, moms and grandmas, Dads and grandfathers are given permission to pray for their unsaved family and friends. And according to the Bible writer, the fervent, effectual prayers of the righteous have avail much. In the early church, wicked and false teachers brought damnable heresies into the church. And one of the first damnable and wicked and false teaching that was popularized by the legalistic Jews was the idea that Gentiles must become Jews in order to be true Christians or to become a part of the covenant community. Some Jews held tightly to the belief that Gentiles were created as fuel to stoke the fires of hell. Some Jews believed that they were saved or damned for all eternity simply because they were saved or damned for all eternity by reason of accident of birth. If you're Jewish, you get to go to heaven. If you're not, well... Sorry. The second perversion included the Gnostic notion that salvation was available only to the spiritually elite. The spiritually elite were defined by the Gnostic teachers as those who had special knowledge, who had special teaching, that only this teaching and knowledge was what the Gnostic leaders could provide. In short, the Gnostic teachers believed that the basic human problem was that they were ignorant and that with the right information you could experience God and you could experience 
experience salvation. But if you didn't have the right information, then you were doomed to walk in this hopeless either anonymity or darkness. Clearly, God's desire for all human beings to be saved doesn't mean that all human beings will be saved. That's universalism. How do we know? How do we know that universalism is false? Because the Bible repeatedly teaches and affirms the notion that some will hear the gospel and receive it. And some will hear the gospel and reject it. Jesus is the one who said broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who are on that road. Narrow is the way that leads to life. So the Lord's desire for all to be saved is reflected in the fact that salvation is available to all. The sacrifice of Jesus is available to all. And the sacrifice of Jesus isn't restricted to a race of people or a gender of people or even what the spiritually elite think about themselves. And so 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10 shows that the guarantee for, of salvation is for all who receive, not reject salvation. If you just turn the page of your Bible to chapter 4 and you read verse 10, look what it says. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Look carefully. Especially of those who believe. Not not believe. Not who say, this is not for me. And so here the knowledge of the truth means the gospel message, faith in Christ. Knowledge of the truth isn't simply directed to Jews. It isn't simply directed to the spiritually elite. God loves the world. God provides salvation for human beings and the offer is to everyone who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The offer is to all who see themselves as sinners in need of a savior. And so no one is beyond God's mercy. Or God's grace. I'm going to pause and give a caveat. If there is such a person, if that person really does exist, they're beyond God's grace, they're beyond God's mercy, I'm going to suggest one more thing. You don't know who they are. You don't have all wisdom and knowledge like God. You don't get to make that decision. Faith is not simply knowing the truth, but believing the truth and trusting the, the truth. Salvation isn't simply understanding that there's a Savior who's available, a loving Savior and a serving Savior. It's coming to grips and believing that he loves you, that he died for you. We do not love and serve the Savior to be saved. Rather, we are saved. And we love and we serve him. 
And the mediator, look what it says in verse 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The knowledge of the truth is the gospel. And now Paul, like a Russian nesting doll, is going to pull out three more necessary things that are foundational for the New Testament believer. He talks about one God, one mediator, and one ransom. And you'll have to remember, for there's one God. Paul must have prayed the Shema thousands of times over the course of his life. Deuteronomy 6.4, every observant Jew, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The God of the Bible stands in stark contrast to the pantheon of pagan idolatry, mystical dualism of Zoroastrianism, the radical monism of Hinduism. There is one God. There is one mediator. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John 14, 6. The one God chooses the one singular Savior. Muslims insist that there's one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. The Jews insist that there is one God and that Moses and the law serve as the mediator. Some Jews in Ephesus may have regarded angels or supernatural creatures as go-betweens between God and men. Romans knew that Caesar claimed to be Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex is the Latin word for Pontus, bridge, Pontifex Maximus. He believed in that word that he was the bridge between heaven and earth, the go-between between the natural and the supernatural. The Roman emperor claimed to be the ultimate bridge between this world and the next world. Paul knew that only Jesus could properly serve as the mediator between God and men. We have a mediator. Do you know what that means? That means there's hope. I was talking with a person yesterday whose friend struggles with a disease that is so profound that she lives in constant agony every moment. I said, how do you give her hope? She says she's about ready to give up on hope. She doesn't think that there's anything. There's no way past the pain. There's no way past the darkness. There's no way to keep on living. And I said, you have to give her hope. And you can't give her what you don't have. Do you have hope? Do you genuinely have hope in your heart that Jesus is the second Adam, the prototype of the new creation and new creature, that Jesus is God, that Jesus retains complete divinity and complete humanity so that he can serve as the one true connection? that can get us where we need to be. There's one ransom. 
verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul repeats this one Jesus is the ransom for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He repeats that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The pagan people of Ephesus and the Roman Empire had grown up in a world where people worshipped multiple gods. They had strong family ties and strong family loyalties to these gods and goddesses. Ephesus was the center of a cult known as the cult of Diana. It was a cult dedicated to her worship and service. Craig Keener says, quote, the Romans permitted subject people to worship their own gods, but they had to show their loyalty to Rome by worshiping the goddess Roma and the spirit of the emperor. Because Jewish people worshiped one god to the exclusion of all others, Rome allowed them to pray and sacrifice for the emperor's health without praying and sacrificing to him. Prayers were offered regularly in the synagogues, showing the loyalty of these Jewish institutions to the Roman state, unquote. But Paul, understanding all of this, is extending this to the people who self-identify as Jesus lovers and Jesus followers. We believe that there's only one way to successfully access God. And that's through Jesus. And so Paul will use the metaphor of ransom to describe the sacrifice of Jesus. God is holy, sinless, perfect. Human beings are not holy, sinless, and perfect. And so he uses that term ransom, which means to buy back from the marketplace. According to Paul's theology, you're captive in your broken condition. But you don't have to remain in your broken condition. Jesus loves you and is willing to save you. So what does Paul mean by due time? Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The phrase literally reads in the Greek language, the testimony in his own times. Scholars have been puzzled by this expression. Some have suggested it means the future preaching and teaching of Paul, or the preaching and teaching of Jesus' followers. Some suggest it's the whole chain of witness from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament saints that reflect the timing of God and the processes of God. If that's the case, then it means the sum and the substance of the witness that God has provided since the beginning of time. That you don't have to remain in your sin. That you can be forgiven. That you can be reconciled. God cannot and will not overlook our sin. He will not allow us to retain our sin or excuse our sin. And so Jesus serves as the ransom. In verse 7 it says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He's the messenger. Paul invites people to hear the truth and believe the truth and receive the truth. 
We understand that some won't embrace the gospel, but the Christian is charged with grace and mercy. He's charged, she's charged to pray. The Christian is often charged with intolerance and disrespect if we believe that there's one God and we don't believe there are many gods. If we believe that there's one mediator, we don't believe there are many mediators. If God gave Christ as a ransom to satisfy our debt, we believe that there is no other way to satisfy that debt. And so Paul describes himself as appointed by Jesus as the preacher and the apostle, the one who's appointed and anointed. In the ancient world, the herald was tasked with speaking the message given by the king or the ruler or the dignitary. Paul is in effect saying, this isn't my gospel. He will say it's my gospel elsewhere. But it doesn't mean that he made it up or that he is the sole purveyor. What he is basically saying is that Jesus has entrusted this message to me and that he's telling the truth and that he's not lying. He describes himself as being a truth teller. And then in verse 8, he says, the conditions of prayer, I desire therefore that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In that verse, Paul lays out, surprise, Three more conditions. Holy hands, without wrath, no doubting. I don't have time to, to parse all of this out. Does public prayer require the lifting of hands? Paul says, lifting up holy hands. What does that mean? What, what did it mean to Timothy? What did it mean to the people who were reading this in Ephesus? It meant that your hands were clean, that you were living holy lives, that you weren't pretending to hold on to something, that your hands were open, that they were clean, that what you said was in your heart was really in your heart. Without wrath means absent anger, which means having love in your heart. Without Doubt must mean the presence of faith. Both Jews and early Christians lifted hands to heaven in, a, in an expectation and longing that God would see their heart. Open hands were a sign of humility. We pray in humility, absent anger or argument. Paul is in effect saying divisions hinder Prayer, not doubting. Why? Because doubting, let me put it a different way. Prayer is weakness that leans on the divine strength. Prayer is weakness that leans on the divine strength. Not doubting, that means in faith. Oswald Chambers famously wrote, quote, Jesus Christ carries on intercession for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit carries on intercession on the earth. We, the saints, carry on intercession for men. I like that. We pray. We pray because we have relationship with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, 
We pray in faith. We pray and worship. We pray in expectation. We pray in submission. We offer petition and confession. We pray in compassion. We pray in dependence. We pray and we are grateful in humility, in holiness, in happiness. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would renew our willingness to pray. That, Lord, we could genuinely pray and worship. That we could genuinely pray in faith. That we could genuinely, genuinely pray in humility and holiness that we could genuinely pray for our moms and dads and brothers and sisters, that we could genuinely pray for our leaders, that we could genuinely pray for those who are estranged from you, who are living lives of emptiness and brokenness and tears. We pray, Lord, that you'd fill their heart with hope, the genuine hope that's talked about in the Bible. That this world isn't everything. That forgiveness is available. That darkness can be overcome by the light. That even persistent pain will one day go away and be considered a light affliction. And so, Lord, we commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.